Good morning. I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 through 16. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in their house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. Laura. Go ahead and keep your Bibles out to Matthew 5 if you haven't already snapped them shut. Uh, We will be spending our time looking at this passage together. That's what we do when we gather each week. A good part of our time is opening uh, God's Word because we want to hear from God. Uh, There's nothing I have to share with you that's particularly interesting or relevant. Uh, the goal is to hear from the Lord, and so we want to uh, we want to give our attention to His Word. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for several months. Uh, Matthew, if you're not familiar with it, is one of the it's the first book of the New Testament. It's one of the four Gospels which tell the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So, how the plan of God for all time, how the hope and and promises of God's covenant people Israel and of all nations, and how the deepest problems in this world uh, all come together and find their answer in the fo- and fulfillment in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and as he sits on his throne in heaven. Jesus is born king of the Jews at the beginning of this gospel, and at the end of the story, he's crucified king of the Jews. And yet... He is the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth belongs. That's Matthew's story. And the part of this story that we're in right now, Jesus has just launched the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. God's rule and reign over this earth, whereby he is making all things new. It has begun. In Matthew 5 through 7, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, we have what's called the Sermon on the Mount which is a collection of Jesus' teachings about what life looks like in God's kingdom, under Jesus' authority as king. Now, just before Easter, we spent some time looking at the first ten verses of this sermon, which are called the Beatitudes. They outline for us the blessings of life in God's kingdom, under God's reign. We talked about how... The Beatitudes are not so much a how-to manual for living in God's kingdom, though that's often the way we treat it, um, but they're much more like a family portrait. In other words, Jesus isn't saying in those verses, go do this, and then go do that, and so on. Instead, he shows us a picture. This is what it looks like to belong to my family. This is what life looks like as part of my kingdom, living under my reign. This is what true joy 
and comfort in a fallen world look like? The kind of joy and comfort that is able to withstand the pain and sorrow of this fallen world. It looks like poverty of spirit, we saw. A brokenness that mourns over our sin and knows our need for Jesus. It looks like meekness that trusts God to be in control amid the chaos, yet hungers and thirsts for all to be made right. It looks like mercy and purity of heart, not having our hearts divided or diluted by the world. It looks like peacemaking, just as God has offered peace to us through Jesus, so we offer it to others. And because living under God's reign means that our allegiance is primarily to Jesus as king and not to the powers around us, it looks like persecution when the world doesn't want Jesus or his authority or anything related to him. These are the kinds of people to whom God's kingdom belongs. That's the family portrait that we saw in the Beatitudes. This morning, as we look at verses 11 through 16, the question we need to ask is this. So what is the family portrait for? What is God doing with it? Why does it matter that God's people look like this? There are two ways that you can treat a family picture in your home. One is to treat it as a memory to be held on to and locked away. So you, you print it on a four by six piece of paper and you keep it in a photo album under the coffee table or, or maybe in a scrapbook in the closet or just in a box or a drawer somewhere. Uh, and every now and then you pull out that picture and you smile as you look at it and maybe laugh at what you were wearing back then and so on. And you, re- you enjoy the memory and then you put it away and you close the drawer and you go on with life. That picture exists just for you and your personal nostalgia. Then there's the kind of family portrait that gets printed on a 20 by 24 canvas and put in a handsome frame and hung in some prominent place in the house, maybe over the fireplace or in the dining room. That picture is not just for personal nostalgia, is it? That picture is displayed for everyone to see. It's a celebration of your family and what they look like for others to see and enjoy and admire. That's the purpose of the family portrait we see in the Beatitudes. It's not just a personal checklist of how am I doing with God uh, or a private reminder of how blessed we are to have Jesus. This is a picture that God wants to display for the entire world to see. As Jesus transitions from describing the family portrait in verses 1 through 10, blessed are those who, and then begins directly addressing his followers in verse 11. So blessed are you, And verse 13 and 14, you are, starts talking directly to them. As he does that transition and starts speaking directly to them, notice the scope of who he wants to impact through his people. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Not just Jerusalem, not just Judea, the entire earth. You are the light of the world. So, God's people have a mission to show the whole world what God is like. That's the purpose of the family portrait. 
to display for the whole world the beauty and the power and the holiness and the love and the grace of King Jesus. So as we look at these verses this morning, I want to invite you to ask yourself and invite all of us together to ask ourselves, what is it that the watching world sees in us when they look at us, in the way we live, in what we do, in in what we say? Can they get close enough to us to see anything? And when they see us, do they see Jesus or do they see something else? Those are the questions I want us to be asking. So let's pray and ask God's blessing as we look at this. Lord, we thank you that you make yourself known to us through your word. And we ask for your spirit to meet us this morning as we look into your word so that we would see you more clearly, that our hearts would be changed by you so that when the world sees us, they see you. That's our prayer, God. So guide us this morning. Bless this time. Amen. God's people are a people with a mission. That is the point here. Uh, Jesus says to his followers in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, if we were to stop and kind of back up a little bit and, and read elsewhere in the Bible, we'd realize pretty quickly this is not the first time that phrase, light of the world, or that idea has been used. Uh, in fact, first, God is described as light in 1 John 1, 5 and several places in the Old Testament. God is light. And that's ultimately the light we're talking about. He's the sun. But then he shines his light through his people. And so as the moon gives a certain light reflecting the sun, so his people are like that kind of reflected light. He wants to shine his light through his people. Even ancient Israel was called to be a light for the nations, to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon the, those who are in prison, those in prison who sit in darkness. Uh, the problem, though, with ancient Israel in their command given there, is that those who were supposed to open blind eyes ended up becoming blind themselves. We read later in that chapter. Uh, the light bearers had become part of the darkness. And so Jesus, as God in the flesh and as true Israel, comes, John 1 tells us, as the true light that gives light to every man. John 1, 9. Jesus is the true light who gives light to every man. Now, the metaphor of light that he's using here suggests something about the world around us, doesn't it? That if, if we need light, that means the world is living in darkness. Now, that can sound somewhat presumptuous, uh, maybe, to say that, you know, we're so, we're the light, they're the darkness. I mean, that just sounds arrogant, frankly, to claim. Uh, especially, you know, you think about it, what about all the progress the world has made? And when you think of living in a dark world, we think of the dark ages, okay? We think of a primitive, uh, unadvanced society, but since the Enlightenment, you know, four centuries ago, we've grown up. We have all incredible advances in modern medicine and technology. Advances in the way we think about morality and social dynamics. 
Aren't we all living in the light today, the light of modern progress? And yet, the clear claim of Scripture is that apart from Christ, for all its advances, the world remains in spiritual darkness. We talked a little bit about this last week, that there is a cloud covering this world, a veil that keeps us in darkness, that blinds us to what the world is really like, that God really is the king who reigns over the whole thing, and that his son, Jesus, is savior to all who seek refuge in him, and yet judge to all who reject him. That's the world as it really is. And we're, there's a darkness that blinds us from seeing that. The Bible calls the root of that darkness sin, disobedience to God. So Jesus came as a light to chase away that darkness. Darkness isn't the final word. It's not the main thing. The light comes in order to chase away the darkness. Just before the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, when Jesus launched his ministry in chapter 4, Matthew tells us that the vision of Isaiah 9 was beginning to be fulfilled. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, Matthew 4.16. So Jesus came to bring light. He came to deal with the problem, with sin. To live a life of faithfulness before his Father, in our place. To show us what life is supposed to look like under God's reign. How the world is supposed to work in righteousness and holiness in love and sacrifice and grace. He came to take our sin and rebellion on himself on the cross that we might be forgiven of that sin, that the debt might be canceled, and then through his resurrection to give new life to all who believe. Jesus came as light to chase away the darkness. And the same king who says in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world, tells his followers in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. It's through his people that Jesus now shines his saving light. As our hearts are rescued, as our lives are changed by him, as they're conformed to look more and more like him, our mission is to show the world what Jesus is like. As Jesus puts it, we are a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Growing up in Nebraska, we lived um, just north of town, a small town, uh, rural area. And at night, when you looked to the west, there was always a glow that hung in the horizon. And I remember asking my dad, what is that? Uh, He said to me one day, that's Grand Island. (laughs) Grand Island? That's 20 miles away. How can that be Grand Island? When you're in the darkness at night in the country and there's nothing between you and a town 20 miles away, even in flat Nebraska, that city shines. Now put it up on a hill, it shines all the brighter. We are the light of the world who are to show the world what Jesus is like. And so he tells us to let that light shine. So they see his light. And the way they see his light in us, according to verse 16, is through our good works, through our good deeds. 
Now, sometimes we can talk so much of grace that we get uncomfortable even mentioning the phrase good works. Because we don't want anybody to get confused and think, well, that's how you come to know God, by being good enough, doing enough good things and so on. We come to know God. We become members of his kingdom not by being good enough, not by doing certain good things. We can't do enough. We come by God's grace, by receiving something absolutely wonderful, even though we deserve something utterly terrible for our sin. We come by God's grace through faith in Jesus as our Savior and King. We are spiritually bankrupt There's nothing we could offer God to pay our debt of sin that would even touch it. Be like offering a few pennies for a multi-billion dollar debt. That's, we got nothing. Christ paid the debt on the cross for us and canceled it. His life, his death was enough to cover the cost so that when we trust him, we are forgiven of those sins. We become part of God's family, members of God's kingdom. We don't just get a clean slate to start over. God takes the slate and breaks it over his knee because Jesus has paid for every sin we've ever committed, past, present, or ever will commit in the future. That's how we come to know God, by grace. But as members of his kingdom... We're called to live lives of good works, lives of holiness and obedience, lives that look like Jesus, our King. Not in order to pay God back, but out of gratitude, love, and loyalty to the Father, and in faithfulness to our calling as His children. Good works are a good thing. That's why we call them good. You know, in fact, the phrase good works is never used negatively in Scripture. Works sometimes is when people are trying to depend upon them to be made in in the right with God or declared righteous before him. But good works are always just that. They are good. They're the kinds of words and actions that honor God and show what he's like. The kind that reflect the family portrait. And when the world sees us, sees this in us, these kinds of the life that that shows what Jesus is like, when they see our lives changed by Christ, reflecting his character, his love, his beauty, it's Jesus' light that they see, not us. But what if that's not what they see when they look at us? Or what if they can't see it because there's something blocking the light? There are three significant temptations that we face as a people whose mission is to reach the world with the light of Christ. The first temptation is to disengage from the world for fear of persecution. To disengage from the world for fear of persecution. We just heard earlier a warning in verses 11 through 12 that if you follow Christ, the world will persecute you. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, we read that, and we pretty much, you know, miss all the language of blessing and rejoicing there. And we just hear the part about how the world is going to do bad things to us. We don't want that. Now, the, 
I'm not sure I want to sign up for something like that. I, I don't like being insulted or marginalized or falsely accused, having my name drugged through the mud. We don't want to be persecuted. And so instead of letting our light shine, we go incognito with our Christianity. And we just kind of fly under radar, lest anyone find out our true loyalties or, or oppose us or reject us or, or otherwise even try to harm us. But that is to forfeit the mission God has given us. That is to forfeit the whole point. It defeats the whole purpose of light. People don't light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. You don't turn your flashlight on when you're camping and leave it in the backpack the whole time. You take it out and you use it. That's the whole purpose what it's for. To try and hide the family portrait hanging in the dining room when the guests come over and you know stick it in the closet kind of defeats the purpose of the family portrait, right? Moreover, to disengage from the world for fear of, for fear of persecution, it's not just to forfeit the mission, it's to miss out on blessing. It's to miss out on blessing. Blessed are those who when falsely accused and insulted and so on. You know? Now it's hard to think that being opposed or harmed in any way can lead to blessing or, or comfort or joy. And yet there is a reward in heaven, Jesus tells us, for sharing in his sufferings and being persecuted on earth. Now, it's important to remember that blessing only comes when our persecution is on account of Jesus. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones reminds us, it does not say, blessed are those who are persecuted because they are objectionable or because they are being difficult. Now, a young high school student that I once mentored um, used to find pride in being persecuted by his teachers at school. They were all against him because he was a Christian. Then I found out it was because he wasn't turning in his homework assignments or, or his papers that they were against him. There's no blessing for, for that, okay? So, but there is blessing for being persecuted on account of Jesus, for righteousness' sake. And there's good company. This is how the prophets of old were treated when they held fast to the truth. And if we are so afraid of being marginalized or maligned because of our hold on to the truth, we'd better get ready. Because the world isn't getting more amicable to Christianity or to Jesus. It's becoming less. God honors his faithful people. He rewards their suffering. And they will be vindicated in the end. Jesus will win. And the charges that are falsely laid against us will be dropped. And so... The Apostle Peter reminds us, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Treat Christ as your King. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Don't forget the family portrait, the virtues here. 
keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So that's the first temptation, to disengage. The second temptation we face in our mission, rather than disengaging from the world, is to try and reach the world by becoming like the world. And this is what Jesus warns against in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness or its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. What does it mean that we are the salt of the earth? It's kind of an odd metaphor. Uh, There were a number of uses for salt in the ancient world. Uh, preservative, fertilizer, seasoning, and so on. One commentator lists at least 11 different possible things that Jesus could be talking about here with this analogy. But I think he tells us what he's talking about because his concern is over salt losing its taste, its flavor. NIV translates that saltiness here, but there's there's a Greek word for saltiness, and that's not what Matthew uses. He uses a word here that means to become tasteless or flavorless. The church is to have a unique flavor in the world. And if it loses its flavor, it becomes useless for its mission. If you've ever made a made ramen for lunch and forgot to add that little flavor packet, I almost did that this week. Um, yes, your pastor still eats ramen on occasion for lunch. Don't judge me. Uh, you know, but that little flavor packet, that is the difference between lunch and garbage. Okay? <laughs> because it's loaded with salt, and salt is what gives it the flavor. Now, there's another way to ruin ramen... I speak from much experience on this subject. And that's by adding too much water so that the salt becomes diluted and you can no longer taste it that way. That, I think, is the picture here. Similarly, the church loses its unique flavor, its unique contribution to the world, when it becomes diluted by the world. One of the frequent charges against Christianity today is that it's irrelevant It's outdated. It doesn't connect with where people are really living. Uh, They don't see why they need it. And the reality is, there's some of us here that are asking that very question. What does any of this have to do with my everyday life? What's, What's the point? That is a legitimate question. That's a good question to ask. And one of the reasons people ask it so much is because We as Christians don't always do a good enough job listening to and understanding the stories and questions that shape the world so that we communicate the truth of Christ in a way that connects, that that people can understand. I'm still learning how to do that. Now, I'll come back to the question about what difference this makes uh, in a little bit. But in light of those charges, that this is just an irrelevant thing, there's all sorts of pressure on the church today to become more relevant or to make it more attractive to the lost. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has put it a little more sharply. At times, we fall into the trap of being blackmailed by a world that says, unless I find your life attractive on my terms, 
I will not respond to the message of the gospel. And so we try to give them what they want. What will bring them in so that then we can maybe sneak in what they, we think they need according to the gospel. The problem, though, is that you win them to what you win them with. You win them to what you win them with. If, in effort to win the world, we simply become like the world, whether by feeding consumerism, this is what you want, I'll give it, or by maybe adopting a coarseness of speech or a hollowed-out morality so that we can be less boring and more cool, then we've not won them to Jesus. We've won them to a baptized version of what they already have which is as useless as ramen without the salt. It's garbage. It does them no good. If we give up the one unique thing we have to offer the world, the gospel of Jesus, if we give that up in our attempt to win the world, we actually become irrelevant to the world. They don't need us. They can get what they're looking for a lot of other places who can probably do it better than us. We've lost our saltiness. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be attractional. I'm saying we should be attracting them to Jesus, to the gospel of Jesus. The light we shine is not the light of financial security or well-adjusted children or successful careers, though the gospel speaks to every single one of those things. Our light is not a new kind of Christianity that's not quite as boring or out of tune with what the world thinks. The light that we shine is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's nothing more, it's nothing else than Jesus and the difference that he makes in our lives. Lloyd-Jones says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, She invariably attracts it. It is then that the world is made to listen to her message, though it may hate it at first. This is how revival comes. So there's a temptation to disengage. There's a temptation to become like the world. Yet there's a third temptation we can easily fall into, which is to hold on to certain secondary things so tightly that they actually block the light of the main thing, which is Jesus. Whenever any people, any people group anywhere in the world seeks to live out the truth of the gospel, seeks to live out the Christian faith, they do so within a particular cultural context. For instance, here at Westgate, our, we, we speak in English during our worship services. That's something specific to the cultural location we have. We meet in a relatively traditional New England church building and hold our services on Sunday mornings. We use particular instruments when we sing and have a regularly, uh, a relatively regular order of service to our worship. We, sir, we have uh, several different kinds of ministries that are part of this church. Some of them meet in the building, some of them meet in homes, some of them meet in local restaurants and so on. None of those are bad things, but none of those are essential to the gospel of Jesus either. They're how we're working out our faith in our cultural location. 
But when some of those secondary things become primary to us, when the church begins to hold tightly to certain cultural forms, but those forms happen to be an obstacle to our mission rather than an asset, we can begin to block the light of Jesus. Maybe it's because the way that we do things is so foreign to our mission field that uh, it doesn't connect, or so distracting that when they look at us, all they can see is this form, and they can't see through it to see Jesus. Uh, A pastor I, I met recently was sharing with me one of the questions he often encourages his congregation to consider. Are we willing to tolerate discomfort for the sake of growth? Are we willing to tolerate discomfort for the sake of growth? Not numeric growth necessarily, but gospel growth. People coming to know the Lord. Are we willing to not always do things exactly the way we wish they were done? Or or to change the way we've done certain things, even though we've always done them that way, in order to remove any unnecessary obstacles we might have and have a greater impact on those we're trying to reach for Christ. And really, underneath that question is this. Do we really love the people we're trying to reach? Do we really genuinely love them? Do we have a heart for the mission field that God has placed us in here in the Metro West? A heart for our cities, our neighborhoods. Does it bug us that so many people are facing a Christless eternity? Or do we love doing things our way so much that we would rather keep the status quo, even if that means dimming or diffusing the light of Christ shining into the world? That's a very harsh way to put it. But we need to ask those kinds of questions. If we're serious about our call to let our light shine into a dark world, Jesus is the light. But when the gospel of Jesus gets a hold of our hearts, when that happens, when we are being changed by the Spirit such that our lives look increasingly like God's family and our unique flavor remains and that light is shining without obstacle, people will see Jesus in us. When our hearts are so broken over our own sin and we're so thankful and satisfied in Jesus who rescues us by his grace such that when others sin against us, we don't respond with retaliation and gossip and vengeance, but instead our hearts are moved to love and compassion. That's not normal. People are going to see Jesus in us. When we see a brother or sister in need and we respond not by ignoring it, but by gladly laying down our lives, coming alongside a single mom who's buried in bills and three jobs, or or lending a car to someone who has a need, even at great personal expense, people see Jesus. When we control our anger, our lust, our lies, when we trust God to provide in difficult economic times, when we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, visit the sick and those in prison, the world will taste the salt and see the light of the gospel of Jesus. And when they see Jesus in us, 
if that's what they're seeing, they have to respond. The world cannot remain indifferent before a church flavored with the gospel. The world cannot remain indifferent to a church flavored with the gospel. If they are, then we need to ask whether we've lost our flavor or whether we're blocking our light. But when they see Jesus in us, they will respond, and our passage tells us here, in one of two ways. Either persecution toward us or praise toward God in heaven. We've already talked about the reality of persecution. Uh, We've already seen in the Gospel of Matthew in earlier chapters how Jesus' kingdom clashes with the kingdoms of this world. But whether it's as seemingly harmless as a a snarky uh, comment someone makes on our Facebook feed, you know, reviling is a sort of persecution, or whether it's more far-reaching in terms of marginalization and physical harm even, because Jesus is king, if that's the fruit of our witness, if that's what happens when they see the light, instead of being a beacon, we become a target, we're still blessed and we can still rejoice because Jesus is king and there is reward for those who suffer for his sake. That's one of the ways the world will respond. Jesus said elsewhere, don't be surprised if the world treats you this way. It's how it treated me. But that, of course, is not the response we're hoping for, is it? One, because we're kind of self-protective and we don't like that. But hopefully, because our hearts break to see people know Jesus. We want the second response for them to meet and worship Jesus. The result that he talks about in verse 16, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's the result we're praying for. That's the goal of showing the picture. We want people to see Jesus in our lives, to hear Jesus on our lips, to see that there is a solution for our sin and brokenness that there is a God whose love is stronger than our sin, who has stepped into his own creation to bring us to himself. We want them to give glory to our Father in heaven by coming to him in faith and repentance and joy and finding the life and love that they've been looking for all along, which only God can give. We want people to bring glory to God by following Jesus. That's what we're praying for. That's the point. It's all about Jesus. The whole thing. If you're here this morning and you've been patiently sitting through this, but thinking to yourself the whole time, how arrogant these Christians must be. How full of themselves to think that they have something that the rest of the world doesn't have but so desperately needs. Who do they think they are? Especially when what they have seems so irrelevant and outdated. I want you to know right now, one, I'm glad you're here, but two, I want you to know it's not about us. It has nothing to do with us. It's not because of anything in and of ourselves. We're not better. We're not more holy. We don't have it all together. Spend 10 minutes with us when we're not sitting here smiling and singing in real life. You will find that out quick enough. It's because what Jesus has done to change our lives. That's the light. That's what it's all about. That's the most relevant thing in this world. To know 
the God who made you to be reconciled to him and to find your significance and your identity and purpose in him, to find grace and strength and wisdom and guidance and support for every situation you face in life and to live the way you were made to live in loving relationship with God as part of his new family, enjoying him forever and serving him faithfully and joyfully by showing the world what Jesus is like. That is the point. It's all about Jesus. So what does this all mean for Westgate? And our call to be a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. Most of us have heard the statistics. You know, Massachusetts is the fourth least religious state in the nation. You know, evangelicals range somewhere just above 5%. It's a mission field. But you don't need the statistics to tell you that. Look at your neighbors. Look at your family. Look at your friends, your coworkers. You know the faces behind the statistics. You know the people they represent. They live next door to you. They share a cubicle space with you. You know that there's a people still living in darkness and facing a Christless eternity. So what does it mean for us to be salt and light today in this time, in this place, for the sake of Jesus? First, it means taking the gospel seriously for our own lives and relationships. If the light is not changing us, we cannot expect it to shine out toward others, right? Now, if we do not find our identity and satisfaction in Christ, if we're not living in the freedom of the grace that he gives rather than performing as though we've got to keep up the the dog and pony show for him to keep his blessings coming and to keep the curses away, if we don't realize that God is a sovereign, gracious king and we're not resting in that, and we're not growing in our holiness according to his word or learning to depend on him more and more each day, and if we're not speaking that gospel truth into each other's lives as a community, helping each other see, well, here's where I'm not believing this truth of Christ, and and, and that's where this heart attitude's coming for, and, and you need to be reminded that this is who God is, this is what he's done for you, and you need you need to know that. If we're not doing that for one another then we have nothing to shine toward others. Second, so first is taking the gospel seriously right here, in our hearts, in our lives, in our relationships. Second, it means praying for the people that we're seeking to minister to, praying for the towns we live in, for the companies we work for. If you don't have a heart for the mission field in front of you, ask God to give you one. Ask God to give you a heart for these people And then ask him to give you a few individuals that you can begin praying specifically for and looking for opportunities to let that light shine. We have to give ourselves to a gospel-saturated, fueled prayer. Third, it means loving the people you're praying for. Pray for them and then love them. Listen to their stories. 
Celebrate the things they're celebrating, the birthday parties, the sports games. You know, learn how they see life, the questions that they're asking. Be with them so that you can learn how to love them and so that you can share your life with them. And then love them by ultimately bringing the gospel of Jesus to bear on their life. There is hope to deal with that problem. There is, there is security to face that fear. Fourth, it means partnering together for mission. So, taking the gospel seriously, praying for people, loving the people you're praying for, and then partnering together in mission. The Beatitudes are a family picture. They're not an individual headshot, which means the world will see it more clearly when they see it lived out in community, when they see the way we love one another according to the gospel. Now, a huge part of that is simply being intentional about making the most of every opportunity for the sake of the gospel, living it out in life's normal rhythms and patterns, which is what we've been talking about with the Living on Mission booklet we've asked everyone to go through. You know, seeing all of life as a mission field and that everything we're normally doing is, is an opportunity to make much of Christ. But an equally significant part of partnering together is for us to share life together as a community that is engaged together in mission, in interacting with others for the sake of Christ. So often when Christians spend meaningful time together, we break off from the world and we go do our special thing. We call it fellowship. If you did it at work, you'd call it a social. But when we do it as Christians, we call it fellowship. But lest we forget what we learned in Philippians a year ago, Biblical fellowship is sharing life both together in the gospel of Jesus and together for the gospel of Jesus. Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. At present, we're exploring new ways that we can help us come together and, and partner together as communities on mission. Smaller communities that together let our light shine into the different areas we live in. You'll hear more about this in the weeks ahead, but on Saturday, April 27th, uh, that morning, we're going to have Bland Mason who is pastor of City on a Hill Church in Boston, a church plant. He's also a chaplain for the Red Sox. Uh, he's going to be here with us sharing what God's been doing through their church to advance the gospel through small community groups who share life engaged in a common mission. We're going to hear what they're doing, what that looks like, and I'm very excited to see what we can learn as a church to partner together in a similar way. What might God do? to shine his light, the light of Jesus, into the Metro West and to the world. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're asking. This morning, as we think about this partnership that we have in the gospel, as we think about the communion and fellowship that we share with one another and with God, we're going to finish that reflection time by sharing together in the Lord's table.
Apart from the gospel of Christ, we are nothing. Apart from our dependence on God, we can offer nothing. This table, however, reminds us that Jesus is enough. He really is enough to use a broken, messed up people like Westgate Church to shine his light into the Metro West. The bread that we're going to take in a minute is a sign that points to Christ's body, which was broken for us on the cross. The blood, the cup, uh, is a sign pointing to his blood that is poured out for us for our forgiveness, for our cleansing. And it's through our fellowship in this gospel, this gospel of Christ, what he's done for us on the cross, it's through our fellowship in the gospel that we're strengthened and consecrated for going forth and shining our light.